Krishna, uh, I am a guest of Sarvatma and Divyananda and uh, Golita just outside Santa Barbara. So we had our little evening program here. I imagine it'll be a little late for most devotees in the world, but hopefully you'll see it later. Um, so I'm going to read from the Sri Chaitanya Bhagavata by Sri Vrindavan Das Thakur. This edition is translated by Sarva Bhavana Das. This is Adi Kanda, which means the first division. Chapter 6, Nimai begins study and performs mischief. Lord Goranga, like the child, Gopal Krishna, performed his playful pastimes in various ways. Soon the time for his formal education approached. Fixing an auspicious day and moment, Sri Misra, that's Lord Chaitanya's father, Jagat Misra, the most elevated Brahmin, formally placed uh, the writing chalk in the hand of his son. So there was a ceremony where you put the chalk in your son's hand. After a few days, the Sri Chuda Karana ceremony, when young uh, Brahmin boys shaved their heads, leaving only a shika, was performed amidst all of Nehemiah's friends. Then after a few days, family and friends observed the Karna Veda ceremony, when the, that's Veda with an H, not Veda, which means sort of piercing the ear. The Karna Veda ceremony, when the ear lobes are pierced, marking the beginning of hearing the Vedas by Nimai. So that ceremony was also observed. Everyone was amazed that Nimai could write down all the alphabet letters immediately upon seeing them. This, of course, is Devanagari's group. Within two or three days, Nimai had learned all the con conjunct letters. So conjunct letters that refers to is like, um, like take the word Kshetra. So you have a K and then an SH. And so there's a way to write those two. You actually form a different letter, alphabet letter. You draw it in a certain way, and it means KSH. Or, uh, for example, if you have two Ts in a row, or anything, or like, like, like an N and a C. In other words, in Sanskrit, when consonants combine, then often you, there's a special way of writing them. So that he also learned that. So you have to not only learn, it's not like in English where like there are 26 letters, you just learn the letters and then everything is just written in one of those letters. Sanskrit, you have all the vowels, then you have all the consonants, then you have conjunct consonants, which are written differently. So we learned that. So he spent his time writing the many different names of uh, the Supreme Lord Krishna, such as Rama, Krishna, Murari, and Vanamali. He studied eagerly and wrote day and night. Vanamali means uh, garland of forest flowers. Vana is forest, Vanamali, wearing a forest garland. He studied eagerly and wrote day and night. Narayana, the lord of the, of the Vaikuntha planets, took the guise of the child Nimai and studied with the other children in Nadia. Only the most fortunate souls could see his wonderful pastimes, Krishna. His Lord Chaitanya is a schoolboy. Of course, he's not called Chaitanya yet. He's Nimai. Uh, everyone fortunate enough to hear Nimai became enraptured 
just hearing his sweet recitation of the Bengali alphabet. So actually he didn't learn it in Devanagari, he learned the Bengali alphabet in the wrote Sanskrit, just like we write Sanskrit in the Roman alphabet. So, so Nimai wrote Sanskrit in the Bengali alphabet, but it still has the same, I mean, conjunct consonants because it was based on Sanskrit. Lord Gordasundra performed his extraordinary pastimes he would demand things that were impossible to obtain. If Nimai could not catch the bird that he saw flying in the sky, he would weep bitterly and roll in the dust. Sometimes he cried for the moon and stars in the heaven and would thrash his arms and legs violently upon being told that he could not have them. At such times, everyone tried to pacify the child. Jagannath Misra would take him in his arms. The child would refuse to be pacified. Dehi, they give, give, he would cry which is just like day he day. The only remedy for Nehemiah's crying was kirtan of the names of Lord Hari. So even as a little child, he's teaching everyone to chant Krishna. Everyone would clap their hands and chant Hari Hari. Only then would Nehemiah forget his distress and become calm. So the rest of this is not really, it's not really about his educational pastimes. Um, So this is really unprecedented. I mean, there's no, there's nothing comparable to this in the world religions where the Supreme Lord himself, not a son of God or a prophet of God, but the Lord himself actually comes down. In fact, people say, oh, there's so many religions and so on, but actually, uh, let me take that up. There is no other religion that I know of among the world religions, among the great world religions. There is no other religion that claims that God himself personally came to this world and lived among human beings and, and everything is documented. So it's actually a unique claim. Some people who oppose religion say there's so many religions, they all claim to have the only truth, which is not true, and they all contradict each other, again, not true. It's interesting, people that say there's so many religions, they all contradict each other. What all these people have in common, as I've said, is that they've never actually studied world religions. So, yes, this particular claim that God himself comes to this world is unique. Or that God himself comes to this world and then speaks a book of philosophy. That's also unique. So, <clears throat> Krishna, of course, being sort of a mischievous young child is something which Krishna also showed. So Lord Chaitanya is recognizably Krishna and in this case, even as a little child, he's teaching everyone to chant Hare Krishna. Um, if you look at Lord Chaitanya, or if you look at, I mean, if you look at his pastimes in this world, or Krishna's pastimes, uh, you have a whole life. You see 
pastimes of a little baby or a child and then an adolescent and an adult. So Krishna comes down. And here's the paradox. Paradox is um, something which is on the surface contradictory, but ultimately may not be contradictory. And that is, on the one hand, Krishna is, of course, coming here to attract us to display pastimes that we can then become attached to and, and, and go back to him. And yet, he can't do that unless he fits into human society. He has to, he comes like, as the Bhagavatam says, Kapatamanusha, a sort of a, a, a fake human being or pretending to be a human being, Kapatamanusha. And yet he speaks human languages. He observes customs, like for example, he goes to school or he takes initiation. He, he does what people do. He has a family, he, he has friends. and So in order for people to be able to relate to him, the Lord does these things. And yet, precisely because he does fit in, then people say, well, he's just a human being. And so that's really the challenge. I mean, for Krishna, not that anything is hard for Krishna, but what Krishna has to reconcile is he has to be like us enough so that we can relate and yet not convince everyone that he's just a human being. And someone could say, well, why doesn't he just like do miracles or, you know, fly around in the sky or people say, because Krishna has a different purpose in coming. He actually wants to revive our love for him. And of course, Krishna does do miraculous things. He does do superhuman things. Ati Martyani, Bhagavan, Buddha, Kapitamanusha, Kritaman. The Bhagavatam says he does Ati Martyani. Martya means mortal, like things that mortals do. And Ati means beyond. So the Bhagavatam, actually the first chapter says Krishna's activities are Ati Martyani. They're beyond what mortals can do. Krishna performs so many amazing activities, lifting Govardhan Hill or killing demons or so many things Krishna did, jumping off a high mountain. And so it's this combination of being like us, but being different from us. And uh, this issue arises, this philosophical topic of <clears throat> arises in the Bhagavatam because in the 10th canto, Parikshit says to Shuka, that Krishna, as we find in the Gita, Krishna comes to set an example. Krishna says, for example, that um, everyone follows the examples uh, of the greatest person. That, um, <clears throat> what's that verse? Yajada Charati Shastas, whatever, Yad. <clears throat> in Sanskrit, when these sort of uh, pronouns are, or Anyway, these little words are repeated. It's like in English, adding the word ever. Like yada means when, and yada, yada, whenever. And yet means what, so yad, yet, whatever. <clears throat> so yad, yet, acharati. This, of course, is the same word from which you get the word acharya. Achara means uh, behavior in the sense of good behavior. It's like a mother 
may say to a child, uh, behave yourself. I mean, the child can say, well, whatever I do technically is behavior. But that sense, behavior means good behavior. So achar is something like that. Behavior in the sense of good behavior, good conduct. And then one whose activities are worthy of being imitated or followed is called acharya. And then acharati is just the verb. Like jad jad acharati, however one behaves or whatever one does. Jad jad acharati, shesta, shesta. Interestingly, if you can tolerate a little grammar here, uh, we still have in English the Sanskrit custom of making the superlative degree with uh, st. Like we say, for example, finest, fine, finer, finest. Oh, pretty, prettier, prettiest. And so the superlative degree is made with st, and that's actually Sanskrit. So you have the word sri, which means uh, like beautiful or 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 good, and then and then the very good or very sri is of course shreyas, and then the most good is shreshta. Like guru means heavy, guriyan means heavier or very heavy, and then garista means heaviest. So you have the same st to make the superlative. Anyway, so jajanacharti shreshtas, whatever the person was most sri who is most honored or most attractive, whatever that person does, which means in every case, uh, Eva, exactly, exactly, in every case, just so, itara jana, itara, I hope you don't mind all the Sanskrit, itara in Sanskrit uh, means the opposite. Like, for example, uh, one way to say a demon or an asura is suretara, sura itara, the opposite of asura. And so if you say, so itara here just means the opposite of shrestha. Whatever the best person does, just so, those, the opposite, in other words, ordinary people. Tatareva itara janaha, sajat pramanam kurute, which means literally whatever evidence he does. So Krishna said, because pramana means evidence. Uh, anyway, I won't go into all the grammar, it's very interesting, but pramana means evidence. We still have that, actually, that word in a different form in English. You may be interested because the word mana, it's not the mana, there are two manas in Sanskrit. One mana comes from the verb to think, man, manyate, manas, the mind. So it's like Lord Chaitanya said, amanina manadena, one who has no mana. In other words, they think highly of themselves. So that that's manadena, but it's giving regard to others, manadena. This is a different mana. This is the mana that comes from uh, the verb ma, which means to measure. So pramana means the exact measure of something, the evidence. And of course, in English, from and then from that same root, you get measurement matra from which we have metric or meter or measure so pramana it's just like for example the uh, sophist uh, what was his name oh my god 
anyway, famous sophist said man is a measure of all things. In other words, so pramana means literally the, the measure of something. So it means proof or evidence of you actually measure something. You actually see what it is. And so Lord, and so Krishna says, Sajat Pramanam Kurute, that whatever evidence or whatever proof the, the person establishes, the best person establishes by his behavior. People take it as evidence. Like if you're following someone and that person, I don't know, let's say someone's following a guru and the guru eats chocolate. Okay, I can eat chocolate. My guru ate chocolate. And of course it can be, so if you're following someone, that's sort of a trivial example, but if you're following someone and they act in a certain way, then you take that as evidence that I can also do it. So that's why Krishna says, Sajat Pramanam Kurute, whatever evidence, whatever proof they establish by their behavior. Lokas, the world, tat, that, anuvartate follows, the world follows that. Whatever evidence, whatever proof they establish by their own behavior, the world follows that. So, um, so Krishna comes down. So, so, so the point came up in the 10th canto uh, when Sukha was going to narrate the Rasa dance and Parikshi said, uh, with all due respect, wait a second. If Krishna came to show the example, which Krishna says, that I come to establish Dharma, Paritanaya sadhu nam dharma sanstapanartaya. Krishna says, I come to this world to establish Dharma, proper behavior. Uh, and so Parikshi said, well, why would Krishna dance with all these girls? Because we are not supposed to do that. And it was at that point that Shuka made the famous distinction between following and imitating. And Shuka said that uh, if the great souls, if the great personalities do something and tell you to do it, then you can do it. But if the great souls do something and don't tell you to do it, then it would be imitation. And they gave the example like Lord Shiva drinking, you know, the, you know, the ocean of poison. And as Prabhupada said, so if you can drink the ocean of poison, you can do your, you know, dance with the girls too. So, um, so when Krishna comes, you can see how, how um, what's the word? In a sense, complicated this is. Because when Krishna acts like we do, so that we can identify with him and follow him, then people say well, he's an ordinary human being. And then if he does things that we can't do, people say, well, he's immoral or, or even if Krishna does things which are not really moral issues like jumping off a mountain or manifesting so many forms, they'll say, well, but he's God, you know, we can't do what he does. So clearly, because conditioned souls are in this world, chiefly to avoid God, um, I mean, think about it. It's like that movie, Bruce Almighty. I mean, imagine here you hear Krishna coming down to this world and dealing with a bunch of, you know, people who are not very bright and trying to accomplish all these things. And so he designs these pastimes, Krishna designs them and it's just it's just the best that can be done 
And at the same time, you, you, Krishna wants to attract people. He wants to show them what to do, but you can't. But at the same time, if Krishna only acted like we do, people say, well, why do you think he's God? I mean, I, I can do it, what he's doing. So Krishna does other things to show that, no, you can't actually do everything I do because I'm God and you're not. But then, so it, it's, you can see, it's not that easy to be God. And, and to come down, and so Krishna designs all these pastimes. Uh, and ultimately, we have to, um, to really understand Krishna, ultimately, considering how complicated this all is, you have to accept a bona fide spiritual master. It's just like, for example, let's say you want to do rocket science. You don't start out on your own. There's already, you know, centuries of science. Even when they didn't have rockets, they were doing laws of motion and, you know, physics and all that. And so you, you just, you're not going to figure it out yourself. You're not going to reinvent that wheel. And to, to really understand Krishna, we have to hear from those who, who know Krishna, including the speakers of Shastra. And then that Shastra is coming down in Parampara, which of course you all know. So um, it really is a spiritual science. It really is a spiritual science. Any questions on those points? There's actually a lot of people, sorry to keep everyone awake so late, but um, Chaitanya Chandra Das from Africa. Well, welcome to the show. What to do when you don't have access to a... Actually, could you come and ask your question? Because people sure. always complain if they don't hear the question. Um, this is Sarvatma. Um, what would you do when you don't have access to a spiritual master and you have this kind of questions? Well, by the miracle of modern technology, everyone does have access. Hmm. And if people, let's say in the past, when there was no such technology, or they, they actually didn't have access to a learned Vaishnava teacher, then somehow or other Krishna, in his infinite wisdom, he put people uh, in those countries or those situations. Uh, because at the at that time, they were not really in the market for <laughs> for Krishna consciousness. Okay, let me let me refine my question. Um, okay, here's a refinement of the question. Um, what happened if you do happen to have a spiritual master, but your spiritual master is not um, philosophical enough to answer the question to your satisfaction, and you you know you accept. We accept the answer because you know that's that's your that's the etiquette. But you, you well, I mean, Prabhupada, Prabhupada, empowered and inspired by Krishna, created a whole spiritual society. For example, often, um, not often, but often enough, uh, my disciples or even other people ask me about details of deity worship. And that's not something I really specialized in, you know, the details of deity worship. And Prabhupada actually discouraged me from it. He 
because he said, you, you know, you have other services to do. And so I always refer to them to the deity worship ministry. It's, and so I think it's not a question, of course, you know, devotees in ISKCON, we all have gurus. Well, not everybody, but most of us have gurus. And, um, and yet, uh, Prabhupada created a big society and he wanted us to profit from its resources. So, for example, even in the university, you may have a professor, let's say I ask a question, professor says, well, that's not really my specialty, but this other scholar did specialize in that and wrote a good book about it. Or you can go talk to him. So I see my job as a spiritual master, not to you know, know everything about every topic, but just to know enough to guide the disciples you know, if I happen to know, I can explain it or not, you know, give them some guidance. Here's where you can get more information on this. And so we're, we're, we really, all of us have access to these tremendous resources in Prabhupada's mission. There are many learned devotees. Some of them may be officially gurus or not, but, but there, are, there are many resources. And there are learned devotees in many different areas, many different fields. Some of them are philosophers, some of them are not. So I think it's a question of looking at the collective resources that Prabhupada provided for us in a large-scale spiritual movement. Here's a question. Oh, from Sankirtan Yoga. Right, Krishna. How do you understand Krishna as Chaitya Guru? It's interesting. Chaitas, of course, means like Chaito Darpana Marjana, the, the mind or the heart. And so Krishna, within the heart, Chaitya Guru. Yeah, thank God for the Chaitya Guru. Um, Krishna's in the heart. And, you know, the karmis sometimes refer to that as Jiminy Cricket. I guess, you know, one's conscience. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, even though it's a cartoon character. But still, there is that knowledge that there's some inner voice. You can call it conscience or whatever you want to call it. And people know it's in the heart. I mean, people don't say, I just know in my liver or, you know, I just know in my lungs or something. People say, I know in my heart. And actually, of course, science shows that there are a huge number of brain-like cells in your heart. So there is a sense in which the heart is a thinking organ, but what about the gut? Gut feeling, I know. Yeah, gut, gut feeling. That's very interesting. Yeah, I think the gut also. You know, it's it's like when you're nervous, you get a stomachache. I mean, you're. So they're all. Yeah, it's it's very interesting how um, sort of the neurological extension into various parts of the body, but still, ultimately, the heart. I mean, I mean, you can know in your, you know, you can have a, because if you, it's interesting, if you have a gut feeling, it may be wrong or right. I mean, if you say, I, have, I, have, I just, I have a gut feeling, which means I believe it, but it may turn out to be something else. But if you know in your heart, is that based on sentiment? Like, well, if someone says, if you know, it's if you know in your heart, is that sentiment? Um, if they really know, some people are self-deluded. Some people are absolutely sure about things that are, aren't true. Uh, not because, I mean, but that shouldn't lead to a general skepticism. 
it's not because just the way we are or the way we were created or whatever, we just can't know with certainty. No, it doesn't lead to skepticism because some people are just not very rigorous and they're not very careful. Like some people some say, I just know there's no God and they're wrong. People make mistakes all the time. But, and yet we do have a moral compass inside. We do know that certain things are right and wrong. And, and, and often people who are sincere, who are by nature virtuous and who pay attention, they often get that right. And that's why, you know, many, many people pass their whole lives without ever going to jail or without ever really doing something seriously horrible because they, so there is a moral compass inside and ultimately it's Krishna. Krishna says, Mata Smritir Jnanam Apohanam Chan. So the degree to which we are Krishna conscious, to that degree, <clears throat> we can really feel in our heart what's right and wrong, what we should do and not do. So, um, of course, getting to the question, Sankirtan Yoga, um, about how do I understand Krishna's Chaitya Guru? I understand that my best friend, the best friend I could ever have is in my heart. And that he's really trying to help me. And although, you know, we're not always great patients, but he's trying to help me. And out of love, Krishna says in the Gita that you are very dear to me. I mean, it's translated, you are dear to me. It could also be translated, I love you. Literally, you are dear to me. Uh, in Sanskrit, it's, uh, they don't often use a verb like we do, I love you. I mean, that's how, if, in Sanskrit, to say I love you, they would say priyosime. Often. Or something like that. So... Ultimately, um, one can become skeptical and think that there's no possibility of certain knowledge in this world or there is no God that can be trusted. And uh, we can never, it, it's sort of this um, uh, extreme skepticism where one simply doubts that anyone really knows. And you could say, on what grounds could you claim that I do know? So I was just writing a letter to someone earlier today. I mean, I, I've mentioned this point. This, of course, we're now in the, the area of philosophy called epistemology, from the Greek word episteme, which means knowledge. That's sort of like the science of knowledge. How do you know you know? Under what conditions are you justified? Which is a word often used in Western philosophy you know, is knowledge justified true belief? Anyway, I won't go into all the endless technical discussions of that, but, but under what conditions are you justified in claiming that you know something? And if someone says, well, that's just your opinion, what has to be the case for you to reasonably say, no, it's not just my opinion, I know it. And so we can look at examples. Boy, this is supposed to be a short little nightcap here at evening class. But anyway, uh, I'll just say a few points. I've discussed this many times. Um, let's look at some examples where we do claim that we have certain knowledge, even though one could uh, try to 
challenge it. But for example, we believe that we are justified in claiming to know, or, or we feel we are justified in claiming to know that there's a real world outside of our minds. There is a philosophy, it's kind of kooky, called solipsism, which is the belief that no one really knows anything except the content of their own mind. And Descartes actually brought this up. He said, what if there's an evil genius who sort of has us all tied up in the laboratory somewhere and is just manipulating our brains and making us believe that there's a real world? That let's say, for example, we're in Santa Barbara. He said, you know, what if there is no Santa Barbara? What if the body you think you have doesn't really exist? You're just, you're just being manipulated. Your brain's being manipulated. And, um, in modern philosophy, they call it the brain in the vat. You know, what if you're just a brain in a vat? So Descartes was the inspiration for the Matrix. Yeah, I guess you could say that. Descartes was a genius in many ways. That's a whole story about Descartes. Anyway, so, and yet, uh, almost everybody is convinced that based on the nature of my experience of this world, I am justified in claiming to know that there really is a world outside my mind. And of course, unless you, now you can call it a leap. And, and so when, when you say that uh, I claim to know, or you simply say, I do know, I know that I'm not a brain in a vat, there's really a world out there outside my mind, what you're doing in terms of, you could say, you know, Western philosophy is you're engaged in a process called foundationalism, which is that every, every system of knowledge has to be based on some foundation. And as Aristotle pointed out, you know, have a little shout out for Aristotle there. Aristotle was the one who actually pointed out that he said, whatever you claim to be true, someone could say, well, how do you really know that? Then you try to give evidence. They can say, how do you know that evidence is true? And so you're pushed into an infinite regress. Regress means going backwards, right? Progress is going forwards, regress going backwards, ingress. Anyway, forget the, the grammar. So you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. And how do you get out of that? How can you ever claim to know anything? How can you ever demonstrate anything or prove anything if no matter what you say, someone can just push you into an infinite regress of proofs? And whatever proof you bring, they'll say, well, how do you know that's true? So Aristotle said that knowledge is possible. We, we do, in fact, know certain things. And we have to declare that, that some facts in the world are self-evident. They prove themselves. It's like they say you can't hold a candle to the sun. So if someone, if the sun is in the sky and we all see it, and then someone says, well, I don't see the sun, I don't think it's in the sky, there are only a few possibilities here. Either that person is, you could say, physically impaired in some way, visually impaired, or the person is lying or joking, something like that. Either the person is, is lying or they are visually impaired. And if someone says, I don't see the sun, prove it, 
uh, no cigar. There's, I mean, it, it, the answer will be the sun is in the sky. Practically everyone sees it. If you don't see it, you're either, if you claim you don't see it, you're either lying or you're visually impaired. And no one's going to seriously claim, you know, I mean, how do you prove to someone the sun is in the sky if they just don't see it or if they claim they don't see it? And, and so, and so the, um, that fact that the sun is in the sky and everyone's, you know, every normal person is seeing the sun, it's self-evident. It proves itself. You don't have to do something else to prove the sun is in the sky. You don't have to do something else to prove there's a real world. What could you do? You can't say, for example, okay, uh, here are my glasses and look at their real glasses. Therefore, there's real material world. That's circular reasoning. Because these are real glasses only if there's a real world. And that's what I'm trying to prove. So it's just going around and around. So therefore, another example, let's say, which we all experience, you go to sleep, you dream. Not yet. You go to sleep, you dream, and, and then you wake up. Now, when you wake up, literally in a matter of just a moment or two, you make a decision without thinking about it that the world I'm experiencing now, awake, is more real than my dream. You can't prove that. Someone could say, prove it. Prove that the dream was not more real. And, you, I mean... The, the the thing prove it, it's just it doesn't really mean anything there's no way how do you even go about that and yet everyone accepts it again it's self-evident it proves itself to us by the way this is exactly the same term lord chaitanya used he lord chaitanya gave this argument by the way uh not only aristotle in talking to sarvabhama bhattacharya and prakashananda lord chaitanya told sarvabhama the vedas are self-evident and your interpretations are just ruining the self-evident nature of the Vedas. It's like, for example, when you read Bhagavad Gita, you're not merely reading something, you're experiencing something. So that when, when Krishna says, for example, I'm the source of everything, if you are Krishna conscious, by reading those words, you actually experience it. So the words of the Gita prove themselves. They're self-evidently true. Not, it's not a question of faith. It's a question of hearing Shastra and actually experiencing it. Or like you hear Krishna's pastimes and you experience Krishna's pastimes at whatever level, you know, you're in, on, at. Whatever level, whatever your level of Krishna consciousness, when you hear about Krishna's activities, you experience those activities as real, as actually taking place eternally. And so... Um, so, so Lord Chaitanya said that the Shastras are self-evident, but they're self, if you give a false interpretation, they lose their self-evident quality. So anyway, um, so the question about Chaitya Guru, which Sankirtan Yoga asked, um, Krishna ultimately is, like for example, if I ask you your name and you just, let's say you know your name, it's a good, you're having a good day and you remember your name. Then, um, I mean, how did you do that? Even if you, if you consider the simple English sentence, I know that. I mean, what does that even mean? If we, if we talk about it neurologically or cognitively, what that means is, let's say, if I ask you your name and if you're paying attention to my question, then you know your name. 
you know your name and you know if someone says well, what is your name like you fill out a form you can write your name down or someone or someone says like do you know what the capital of finland is and let's say you know it's helsinki so but where does that come from in other words if you take this sort of the simple statement i know something i know what the cap what is what is the capital of, of, of finland or i know you know 10 times 10 what the number is and we, so whenever about anything you believe you know something what does that really mean what does it really mean to say you know something what it means is that you are aware of having that information inside of you and if called upon you can produce it you can actually say what it is and so but that's what that's on the surface that's what's going on on the surface but if you look at that more deeply at what does it mean to know something it again it means you have access to information somehow within your within your um consciousness you have access to it and you know you have access to it you have to come and ask a question don't worry wait 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 people want to hear your question we're what this is divyananda an excellent vaishnavi what about in the case of an atheist who says that they know that God does not exist? Oh my, that ruined everything. Just kidding. So first of all, if an atheist says, I know God doesn't exist, they're speaking falsely. And we can prove they're speaking falsely because if God doesn't exist, then no one is omniscient. Certainly not the atheist. The atheist certainly can't claim to be omniscient. And the atheist cannot claim to be receiving information from an omniscient source, because if there was an omniscient being, that would really start to look a little bit like what we mean by God. So if there's no omniscient being, then no one knows everything. So obviously no one knows if God exists or not. So, so atheism is a philosophical dead end. It's a philosophical dead end. Agnosticism just means I don't know, which can be an honest statement. But atheism philosophically is, is absurd. And someone could say, well, then, like, like a typical argument atheists might give would be, well, uh, what we know about the world is incompatible with the existence of God as God is normally depicted, you know, the triple O God, omniscient, knows everything, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnibenevolent, all good. So, it, you know, there's so much suffering in the world. If God is omniscient, he knows there's all kinds of injustice and suffering. If God is all good, omnibenevolent, then he wants to stop the suffering and the injustice. And if God is all powerful, he can stop it. So he knows the problem. He wants to solve the problem. He has the power to solve the problem, but he doesn't. So therefore there can't be a God who knows everything, is all good and all powerful. Bad argument for various reasons. Uh, the argument actually doesn't work 
because first of all, to say that, to say that God could stop all injustice, maybe it's like that, what was the minority report, that Tom Cruise movie, where people have the power to know when someone's about to commit a crime. Um, it's just like, for example, if you say, well, God is all powerful, can God make a square circle? And that's not a valid requirement for God because there's no such thing as a square circle. If you say God can do anything, but that's not something, there's no such thing as a square circle. It's just like, if you know what the word square means, what the word circle means, you know a square circle actually doesn't mean anything in English. The example you use is kind of you make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it. Right, yeah, that a rock so heavy he can't lift it. Um, that, that's a different topic. We'll get into that one next. But 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 as far as um, there, there are refutations of that. But as far as um, making a world where no one, making a world where people have free will. If they don't have free will, then they're not persons, and they the whole purpose of the material world fails. The whole purpose of this world is to give people a chance to make choices, to do things freely, and then to experience the natural and reasonable consequences. So if, to say that God can create a world, people have free will, but they can't do what they want, uh, it's just a contradiction in terms. There is no such thing as you cannot do what you want to do, but you're free. I mean, there's no such thing as it. Or to say that to make a world where people are free, but they have to do the right thing. They have to do the right thing. And you could say if you're forced to do the right thing, you didn't really act virtuously. For example, let's say someone you know comes to you with a gun, it puts a gun to your head and says, here's a poor family, you should give you know some charity to feed them. And you have a gun to your head, and to save your life, you give them money, you are not charitable, you just acted in your self-interest as you perceived it. And so, if you're forced to do the right thing, you didn't do the right thing. Because the essence of doing the right thing is you do it because you want to do it voluntarily, not out of coercion. So, um, so that atheistic argument ultimately fails because if God is simply allowing people free will, and then if someone misuses their free will and hurts another person, the person being hurt actually deserved that by their own karma, then you cannot say that uh, if God, you know, God sees the injustice and the suffering, he wants to stop it. Those two things are true. And if he's all-powerful, uh, he can stop it. It's true. God actually could stop all the suffering by turning people into robots or by taking away their free will, but that would be a greater evil because he would practically be annihilating people as people. It's like, for example, that, that's what capital punishment is. Okay, you will never kill or rape again because the state is killing you now at least not in this life. So if God destroyed people's free will, took it away, 
and turn them into just, that would be horrible, wouldn't it? To lose your free will so you're not a person anymore. And then what would have been accomplished? So the whole purpose of this world is to uh, train people, to help them to help them to become good and I and Krishna is actually doing it in the best possible way. So it's getting a little late now, even for me here in the West Coast of California. I'd like to thank everybody for watching. Should we give a shot of deities to all your viewers? Yeah. Uh I uh Sarvatma and Divya have very beautiful deities here. And so do you want to show them the deities? Can you go a little closer? Yeah, so thank you all very much for watching and uh hope to see you all again soon. Oh, one more question from Sri Astas. Cuando Sri Krishna habla de Dharma y Karma, llego a entender que en la Karma es en Spanish. Okay, uh, Gurudev, when Sri Krishna speaks of Dharma and Karma, I uh, I come to understand that in a Karma, that entails the concept of Sanatana Dharma, as uh, Karma entails Swadharma and Dharma. What is in Vig? Okay, there's a lot of Karmas there. Could you detail every one of these dharmas, Natan Swapa, V, and Pada Dharma? Yeah, it's very simple, really. Uh, Sanatan Dharma is what we do eternally as souls, not as bodies. Swadharma generally means a, a, a duty which is appropriate to the bodily situation we have in terms of gender, in terms of varna, in terms of ashram, and so on. Uh, Appa Dharma means, Appa means away, means doing something which is against Dharma, V Dharma is the same thing. So that's it. So thank you all very much and uh, hope to see you all soon. Hare Krishna, thank you again for watching. <laughs>